If you'll open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, and if you'll please rise, we'll be reading the, the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. Please read with me. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples were eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they have given their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. For it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Verse 9, and Jesus continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the command of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, that you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, Jesus asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. May God bless this reading of this word. You may have a seat. I don't know if you knew this about me, but originally I was going to be a computer IT repair technician. That's what I was training for in college. So I went to a lot of college classes. I took a lot of programming classes. One of the things that they hammered into our heads in programming classes was the concept of GIGO. As Pastor Steve was talking about, garbage in, garbage out, G-I-G-O. And the idea behind this was when when the professor said, when you're frustrated that your program isn't giving you the results that you want, it's not the program's fault. It's your fault. You either fed it garbage in, in the input you gave it, or you programmed it wrong. It's not the, the program will just regurgitate whatever you give it. Garbage goes in, garbage comes out. So it was on our heads. 
And so whenever that happened, we had to go trace all the way back to the root of the problem, whether it was faulty code or faulty input into the program. So when I was reading this passage on Mark 7, Geigo came to mind. My, my old habits came to mind. When I, when I was contemplating what the, this question of what defiles a person, what truly defiles us, and the question is, is it what's put into us that defiles us? Or is it something else entirely? And that's really at the core of, the, of this whole passage here. What makes us unclean? Because I don't think a lot of us can stand up as sinners and say, I'm clean. What makes us unclean? After a series of healings and miracles, Mark now turns his attention back for the first time since chapter 3 to this theme of the opposition. I mean, we've had, we've had four chapters or three chapters since then that we haven't even heard hide nor hair of the Pharisees, but now they're back. Now the opposition is back. When we last left the Pharisees, you might remember that they were plotting with their political rivals, the Herodians, about how to best assassinate Jesus. They haven't figured out a good plan yet here, but that opposition hasn't gone away over time. In fact, in these first few verses in Mark 7, we see that Jerusalem has set yet another contingent of theological hitmen who are coming to try to trap Jesus, try to catch him in a big lie or, or something that they could just use to turn against him and draw people away from this uh, teacher. And they don't have to wait long because really it just takes all the span of a, a meal that they go, aha, we got you. Look at your disciples, Jesus. You're responsible for them, and they haven't gone through the ceremonial washing to make themselves clean. What kind of teacher are you that you would have disciples like this? Obviously, Jesus has instilled garbage into his disciples. So I think a couple things we first need to understand about this passage. When we talk about the ceremonial washing, we are not getting into the territory of hygienics. Uh, we're not talking about being, uh, of being really clean. When your mom says, go wash your hands before a meal, that's not what this is. Actually, the ceremonial washing we're talking about is they would go up to a bowl and they would trickle water on the backs of their, their hands and on their wrists. Just a trickle of water to show that they were ceremonial, so ceremonially clean. So it was not a, a good scrubbing up before a surgery kind of thing. And the question here isn't one of God's commands. We might think, oh, the disciples aren't following God's commands. You might have it in your head that somewhere in the Old Testament, somewhere in all of those laws, that there's something about washing and, and being clean. In fact, there is. For the priests, the priests would have to do this. The priests would have to wash your hands to show that they are ceremonially clean while they were doing their duties in the temple. But at no point in the Old Testament did God ever instruct the people that before a meal, you had to do this. But for 200 years, somewhere along the line, tradition started cropping up among the Jews that this is just something they did, and they had to do, and everybody did it. So if everybody did it, I have to do it. I have to jump off a cliff. Everybody jumps off a cliff. You know how that goes. Your mom tells you that. So they got over 200 years, they had been ceremonially washing their hands before meals. So this was obviously a big scandal that they had broken this tradition. Now I have to say that tradition is a powerful thing. 
No doubt we've all seen Fiddler on the Roof, right? I'm sure even some of us have been in Fiddler on the Roof. I was the rabbi, by the way. It was especially strange because my brother was the, uh, the tailor, and he got married to his then-girlfriend, and I was performing the ceremony. So they might be legally married. I'm not really sure. But you might remember in Fiddler on the Roof, if you've ever seen it, the opening song when Tevya is singing and talking about tradition. It's tradition, he says. Traditions tell us who God is and who we are. Tradition is the theme of Fiddler on the Roof. and it is, it, You see how much it's at the core of a people's identity. And really that draws off of this, the Jewish lifestyle here in the, the New Testament. Now I want to I be very clear in saying traditions are well and good. In fact, there are good traditions. I'm sure some of you right now are sitting in your traditional spot, your sacred spot. You have just a, a perfect spot. If somebody ever sat there, you'd be giving them the steely eyes because they're breaking your tradition. Traditions are fine. We have traditions around a lot of things in our life. Traditions aren't bad. Where they get bad is when we take traditions and we elevate them to traditionalism. You hear that ism there? Traditionalism. Traditionalism is when we take traditions and we hold them as just as important, if not maybe a little bit more so than God's commands for our lives. There are traditions that have somehow supplanted God's commands. Many weeks ago, when we were talking about a first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees about traditions, I mentioned the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a book of holy traditions, of these sacred traditions that the Jews had compiled. And they had this whole list of all these rules that they would follow in their life, in addition to sacred scripture. So where God stopped, the human traditions just kept on going. And in so many walks of life, these traditions became a fence that would fence people in. And they would, it would force them to live their lives in a very specific way, very strict way, that if they ever stepped out of that, the community would stomp on them say, no, you have to get back in and be fenced in. Really, it was regulation madness. And that regulation madness did nothing more than chip away at people's freedoms and give the religious elite more power. They were binding people where God had left them free to live their lives. And that's what we call today legalism. If you haven't heard people say traditionalism, I'm sure you've heard people say legalism, especially in the church, is a poison that infects almost every church that I've ever seen and heard from. Legalism runs rampant because I don't think we're good about identifying it and then countering it. So here's your rule of thumb. You don't remember one other thing from today's sermon. This is what you remember. The rule of thumb about legalism and traditionalism is this. If the Bible gives you a universal command that all followers must obey, we must follow it. All right? But if the Bible leaves us free to follow our conscience, follow our convictions in certain areas, then we must be very careful about imposing rules on others to follow our own convictions. You may have a conviction about drink and, and say, well, we shouldn't imbibe at all. I may not be convicted in that area. That's where we may be, must be very careful not to impose traditions and legalistic uh, Area, um, attitudes upon other people. 
When we take the traditions up to the level of traditionalism, we constrain those who live in God's kingdom. We actually make this a miserable place to live because we're always scared of breaking somebody else's rules, of breaking those traditions, of upsetting people that will then turn to us and scowl at us. We become more concerned about being outwardly perfect than of having inward righteousness. So here's another rule of thumb. When you hear people say things like, well, we do this here at church because it's the way things have always been done. Whoa, you should have a light go on off your head. Instead, we should be saying, what does God command us to do? And what are we free to choose? Maybe we should sit down and pray about this. Maybe we have always done this for a good reason. But maybe it's okay for us to take another look at this here. Of course, the, I think it's kind of ironic here that in this passage, the Pharisees are coming up to God himself and saying to God, God, you're not following our traditions, our human traditions. What arrogance. What arrogance. And when we do that, we're arrogant toward God as well. And Jesus turns right back around and says, listen, you guys are paying lip service to God with their mouths, but with their hearts couldn't be farther away. You're just religious actors putting on a good show for others. But man, you, you don't live what you, you don't practice what you preach. Traditionalism and legalism makes us lose sight of what God is truly concerned about. There's more than enough in those, the pages of the Bible to show us what God's truly concerned about and for us to be following that, to, to add more to it. So in the life of the church, we need to understand Scripture, and then we need to test our traditions against the Scripture. Do our traditions supplant God's Word? Do they force us to go contrary to God's Word? Do they bind us where God left us free? Let's be very, very careful about that. So there was a lawyer. I love lawyer jokes. I used to have a lawyer friend. He always loved it when I threw these into the sermons. There's a lawyer on his deathbed. And as he's on his deathbed, he calls over to his wife. He says, bring me a Bible. And his wife brings him over. She's all very excited. She was a Christian. She's like, what verse do you want to look up? He's like, no verse, no verse. I'm just looking for a loophole. I don't think there's anything quite as human, quite as inherently sinful as our ability to look for the loopholes in everything. We are so good at that. Any situation, if there's a, we're, we're looking for a way around it, a shortcut. And yet, loopholes are another type of legalism. I don't know if you ever realized that. Because legalism, at its core, is us saying to God, I don't really want to obey what you just said. I want to do my own thing. And a loophole is a way to get around God's law to do what you want to do anyway, to do the sinful thing. So even as the Pharisees are kind of sputtering in anger as Jesus gives them this really harsh retort, he goes on to point out how they are living their lives in utter hypocrisy. And this example Jesus gives is a little confusing, so I I want to really explain it because I think it's very telling for the way the Pharisees live their lives. So the Old Testament, you'll remember from the Ten Commandments, is pretty clear that you have to honor your father and mother. And part of honoring your father and mother is taking care of them. If they fall ill, if they fall in hard times, if they're becoming infirm, you take care of your family. That's pretty, I mean, that's great common sense, and that's what God commanded us to do. But that costs money. And some of these rich religious elite didn't want to part with that. So they came up with a crazy loophole. And the loophole was this. 
Basically, you could declare all your possessions and all your wealth as Corbin. Say, you know, one day you wake up and you go to the temple and you say, I want to I dedicate all my wealth, all my possessions to the temple. So that after I die, all of it goes to the temple. Now, the priests really like this rule for obvious reasons, you know. I mean, we, I, the session talked about it. They, I said, no, we probably shouldn't do that here. But the priests really liked this because they were guaranteed a big chunk of money would come into the temple after the person died. But when, when the person was alive, that wealth, that possessions, couldn't be used to spend it on other people. It was protected. Except for yourself. That's a loophole. The loophole was, if, if your possessions were Corbin, you could still buy yourself a nice home. You could still use it to buy all the luxuries you want. You would just have to go, Mom, I'm sorry you're dying, but I can't spend a dime on you right now. All this wealth, it's Corbin. Do you see that? Jesus turns around, and he's incensed at these people, going, you hypocrites. You say you're, you're righteous because you dribble some water on your hands, but your mom over there, your dad, you're not taking care of them because you say your wealth is Corbin? And then he, Jesus says, and you do many things like that. That's just one example. I wouldn't even want to know what the other ones are. The question here, is where our true authority lies. Because I believe if the tr- your true authority lies in the scriptures, lies in God's word, you're not going to look at the Bible and go, how do I get around this? How do I get around those Ten Commandments that are, are forcing me on this path of righteousness? I don't want that. I want to get around it. If that's your true authority, you obey gladly, you obey freely. You obey, it's, 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 it's a joy, as David says in the psalm. It's a joy to walk down that path of of righteousness. But if your true authority lies in yourself, and you want to look good to other people, you're going to have to come up with some loopholes to get around the commandments of God. We're so good at that. We're so good at rationalizing and justifying our sins. I'm not saying this as an exempt. I've done this myself. In fact, it reminds me of a pastor friend of mine who had some, some students, some young students come up to him that were in college. And he, and he confronted them. He says, listen, you're sleeping together. You're living together. And you're, you're Christians coming to church. And he knocked it off. And they said, no, no, pastor, it's okay. Because we believe in Jesus. And Jesus died for our sins. He's forgiven us. So we can keep on sinning. Follow that logic. Yeah, that makes sense unless you've read the Bible. We can keep on sinning because Jesus died for us. You know what the pastor said? He turned around and he said, Jesus went on that cross for your sins. You want to put one more sin on his head? Keep on doing it. Or else stop and follow him. Stop with the loopholes. Jesus used scripture here to counter this loophole mentality, to counter the legalism that was in the hearts of these Pharisees. And he said, listen, right here, honor your father and mother. That's it. That's God's command. Obey it. Don't try to get around it. Don't try to be sneaky. I think that applies to us too. We need to stop being sneaky in our lives. Just be obedient. There was a missionary named Kathy. She went to to India for many years, and she was ministering to the locals. And she made a good friend, a Hindu lady. And for years, she would try to minister to her, try to share her testimony 
with her Hindu friend and, and was making very little progress in that regard. But one day, Kathy had this idea. So she knew every day her friend would go down to the river, and you know how Hindus would, will go down the river and they do ceremonial washing there. So uh, Cindy, I'm sorry, Kathy, she brought all of her laundry, all of her clothes in a box, one of the washing boxes. And she went down the river and she knelt down by her friend, gave her a little nod, and she put the box in the river and she soaped up the box and she started scrubbing the box. And her friend started giving her a really strange look and said, you know that would go a lot better if you opened up the box and you took out the clothes. And you go, like, have you never washed things before? And Kathy says, yes. You know what? You're right. And she turned that around. She said, but that's like how we are. We can wash the outside, but only Jesus can take what's really on the inside and make us clean. And you need that in your life just as much as I do. And at this point in our account here in Mark 7, Jesus turns away from the Pharisees. He's already rebuked them. And he turns toward the crowd. And he makes one of the most revolutionary statements. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not overstating this here. One of the most revolutionary statements in all the New Testament. So I'm going to repeat it here for you, where Jesus says this. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. This statement right here is a game changer for the Jews. Jews had this notion that whatever was put into the body or whatever was done on the outside of the body would infect what was on the inside. Garbage out became garbage in. It like seeped into you. It infected you. Um, the religious elite were downright obsessed with this notion of being ceremonially clean as possible on the outside because they wrongly assumed that that cleansing on the outside would make them clean on the inside, would protect that, that purity on the inside. And before we were to judge them for that ignorance, this, this mindset still goes on today. And in our culture today, we see it take the form of the notion that people are basically good. We're basically good. We're already clean on the inside. It's just whatever's on the outside can infect us. Our actions might uh, infect us. Or maybe we're exposed to something and that starts infecting us. And maybe we turn down a bad path. But really, we're basically good. We're okay. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is going the exact opposite. It's revolutionary when he says, it's irrelevant what you do on the outside. I'm not saying it's not, you shouldn't do good things, you shouldn't obey God, but he's saying when it comes to your heart, it's irrelevant what you do on the outside because your heart is already infected. Your heart is already poisoned. So you can wash your hands as many times as you want, but that's not going down to the level of your heart. You are already infected by sin. Garbage is on the inside, and garbage will go out. I'm sure many of us have been rather impressed by the growth of our lawns this spring so far. And I've had a lot of a nice crop of dandelions in my lawn. And my kids come along, and they love to pluck the flowers off of dandelions. And they think they're helping me. They, they, can, they can do that, but they think they're getting the dandelions out of the lawn. And I say, no, no, no. If you really want to get rid of a dandelion, what do you have to do? You have to go down to the root and yank it out. And that's the kind of procedure we have to do in our lives to address sin. We can't just do a surface thing where we're plucking off 
the symptoms, we have to go down to the root here. Our true condition as sinners is as dire as they come. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is desperately sick. The heart is desperately sick. Romans 3.10 doesn't mince words when it declares that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good, not even one. You can't perform open-heart surgery on yourself. So, more so, the type of surgery that takes for us from sin over to obedience. You need a spiritual surgeon to do that for you. You need somebody who goes to the root of it, yanks out that sin, and replaces it with goodness. The other reason why this statement is such a game-changer, so revolutionary, is that Jesus essentially puts an end to all the silly traditions, this traditionalism that has cropped up in the name of looking as righteous as possible. In one fell swoop, Jesus breaks people free of the chains of traditionalism while also declaring all foods clean. Some of you are in the, the adult class in Sunday school, and you're going through the book of Acts. And this statement right here goes right into Acts. Remember when they're, they're grappling with that question of can Gentiles come into the faith? And Peter has this vision of God lowering down a bunch of food, a bunch of animals, and says all of this is clean. Jesus has already declared that, but he has to really kind of hammer in that point to Peter again and says all is clean and it paves the way for the Gentile. The real focus of this passage is not what we do, but it's who we are. We can try to hide this filth that's inside of us. We can try to hide the impurity. But sooner or later, if we are sinners, unrepentant sinners, it bubbles out. It comes out into our life. And Jesus here then lists 13 disgusting crops that this defilement produces, this poison produces. And as we read that list, I think it makes all of us squirm because all of us can identify with at least one or two or ten of those things on that list of those sins. Tim Keller once noted that if you have legalistic remorse, you say, oh, oh no, I broke God's rules. But if you have true repentance, you say, I broke God's heart. These crops that Jesus lists here, these 13 crops, break God's heart heart. And we do them all the time. Each one of us is guilty. Yet with the grace that Jesus extends to us, we are given the opportunity for a new life that is from the inside out fruitful and holy. This is why later in the New Testament we read about the fruits of the Spirit, and none of them are these crops right here. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those fruits come from where? From the inside out, from the good heart that God, that the Holy Spirit is making in you when you are regenerate, when you are in Christ Jesus. And against doing any of those things, God says, there are no laws and no traditions, nothing to ever bind you from producing a fruit of the Spirit. That's what I want to be producing. I don't want to be producing garbage in my life. I've had enough of that. I've had a lifetime of that. I want to produce fruit. When Christ is on the inside, Christ will flow out from your actions, your thoughts, and your words every day. And by those fruits, we will know 
we've been made clean. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let's come to this passage today after reading it and have a position of humility, knowing that, Lord, we have broken your laws. Not our traditions, not our rules, but we have broken your laws and your heart. But Lord, also we thank you. We thank you because we know that you are faithful if we ask you to come into our lives to make us clean from the inside out, to help us produce good things in our life. Lord, I pray that that will be at the center of Knox Church, Lord, that we will be a church full of fruit-producing Christians, that people look at us and go, not, man, you're just like everybody else, but they'll look at us and go, I want that too. I want to be a person who produces goodness and faithfulness and love. Lord, in all these things, we know that we are incapable on our own, but we are capable with your help. So, Lord, please help us in your name. Amen. We got an opportunity today from what we talked about to kind of self-evaluate where our heart is. Because the tough part is um, other people don't necessarily know what's going on in our heart. We do, and, and God does. People see what we do on the outside. People see things like how we wash our hands or how we eat or how we act and speak and those kinds of things. But we know the condition of our heart. God knows the condition of our heart. And I love the way that, that Pastor Justin put it, that we need a spiritual surgeon to make sure our heart is in the right place. So the reality is we have to get out of God's way and let him do his work. We know that's the Spirit's job. So we evaluate our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to move in an amazing way, and we'll be transformed from the inside out. Go in peace. Amen.